Today, on a super special vacation edition of Sagittarian Matters, we talk about shark attacks, children's literature, my gender book, family feud, and more. With my guests, Isaac Soloway Strozier and Alec Longstreth. Stay tuned. From Provincetown, Massachusetts. I'm here at Home of Shark Attacks with frequent contributor to the podcast and fan favorite, Isaac Soloway Strozier. So happy to be back. Thanks for coming back. Isaac, what has been happening here in Provincetown? Um, so there's been a couple shark sightings and one shark attack. Uh, Two attacks if you count the seal. Yes, one shark attack of a human. Another one was a shark attack of a seal. A 61-year-old man in Wellfleet, or was it Truro? Truro. Truro um, was uh, bit by a shark. He got chomped. The shark bit his lower torso. And what I heard from the radio this morning is that he is alive and well in a local hospital. That is wonderful. Yes, but, but this bite did send a shiver down the spine. Of not only province Tonians, but also uh, <laughs> residents of Wellfleet, Truro, and uh, other towns on the Outer Cape. Uh, including this time, we were both in the water on the day the shark was a chomping. Uh, somebody, there's a new app I have called Sharktivity that I heard about here. You can look at a map of where you are and see if there are any shark sightings that people reported. And if you click on it, sometimes you see a photo. And a little log entry. So today I saw a log entry of a great white shark seen pretty close to here. I mean, Truro's nothing to sneeze at. And um, it had, somebody took a picture of it. It was eating a seal right in front of them. It was eating a seal in 20 feet of water. Or 20 feet from shore. It's just something like some some 20 feet thing. 20 feet from shore, I think. 20 feet from shore, it was eating a seal, just chomping it in front of everyone. Terrifying. Terrified, but will you still go in the water? Well, here's the thing. The waters that I swim in, um, I, I, I swim in three, two, one. <laughs> I swim. Should we do three? Try that. What should we do? You keep going. Okay. Should I, should I explain or never mind? Yeah. <laughs> I usually swim in the bay. Um, I, I, it's so calm. It's nice. The place we're staying is right here on the water on the bay. Um, there aren't really any sharks in the bay. They're the occasional sighting, but they are few and far between. Famous last words. Of course. Exactly. Um, so I'm not really scared because all of these shark sightings and attacks have taken place on the ocean side. I do want to say someone we know today lost a tooth in the bay. That is true. And a lot of people, including children, were all up in that bay. Which is a shark could access if it wanted to. Everyone was in the bay looking for a tooth, holding up rocks and seashells, offering those to our friend who was not amused. Not amused. <laughs> <laughs> um, Isaac, any other news to report from Provincetown before I send listeners to my pre-recorded interview with friend to the show Alec Longstreth about making children's books, in which I reveal my gender book project that I'm working on with Ken Corbett and Judith. Butler, also known as Judy Butler. Big, big news. Very exciting. Yeah. That the, the, the world just learned about this. 
The book? Yeah. In, just now, because they haven't even listened to the podcast yet. So that, that was the reveal just now. That revealed just now that I'm working on this book. They might already know, but they might not know. They might not know. Uh-huh. This is very exciting. It is. And you know Ken Corbett. Yes, I do. He was overplaying Banana Grams last night. That's true. That's true. Um, any other giant news from Provincetown? We saw someone on Family Feud who, um, during the rapid fire round, Steve Harvey asked, name one habit a woman can take up, one, one thing a woman can do that will make her look unattractive. And the guy said... Big noses. Have a big nose is a bad habit a woman can have that lowers her attractiveness. So women, also, God knows. Just a note, he got a zero on that. that he got a, a big zero on that. But also, that question sucks. Yeah. Like, what, who who cares if a woman's attractive to you? Or like, a woman, if she wants to smoke and it's not attractive, fuck off. I wear orthopedic footwear that Michelle T is called aggressively unsexy. And you know what? what? It's no one's business but my own. There was also a contestant who, when asked, name a job where people have big egos, said? Electrical engineer? It was then revealed that her brother-in-law was an electrical engineer, and he was on her Family Feud team. <laughs> and then the number one, the number one most likely answer for a job that has a big ego, was it actors? Nope. Was it directors? Nope. What was it, Isaac? Judges. <laughs> how many people in the Family Feud audience have a bone to pick with a judge? And how often do people come into contact with judges, most people, that they would have an opinion about them that was negative? Wait, I think either I have a, a uh, I'm either I'm confused about something with Family Feud or you are. The answers come from the audience. I always thought that they – I always imagined that they surveyed the audience. Who else would they survey? When, they say, when they're saying survey says, I've always thought that was a – people don't care about this. It's, it's not like a Pew Research study. It's like from the Census of America. <laughs> no, I thought it was, it was a slightly bigger uh, study than just the people – I guess it makes way more sense for it to be the people in the audience. But I thought – I don't know. They went down to the street and, and, and passed things out. I Thought it was all the people. I thought it was all the ding dongs in the audience. I didn't think it was like the Census Bureau goes around and they say, Name one habit a woman could take up that makes her less attractive. And four out of five people said, Have a big nose. I always thought, you know, like on like at like Venice Beach or something, something outside of the arc light, there'll be someone who's like trying to give away tickets to go see something like that. I've always thought that's where those, um, those, what, those surveys were done. But maybe Survey Monkey? Are you, have you ever done a survey? No, it's not, survey it's not from Survey Monkey. This show predates <laughs> Survey Monkey. <laughs> Alec Longstreth is my personal productivity coach. He is the author of the graphic novel Basewood, the comic Phase 7, the kids comic I Love Elsie, and more. You can find Alec, I Love Elsie, and the full-length version of our talk at his Patreon page, patreon.com slash longstreth. Now please enjoy my talk with Alec Longstreth. Hello and welcome to the Isle of Elsie Patreon podcast. I'm your host and cartoonist, Alec Longstreth, and today I'm joined by my esteemed guest, Nicole J. Georges. Welcome to the podcast, Nicole. Hi, Alec. Thanks for having me. Oh my gosh. Well, before we talk about anything, I just got to hit a giant pause button in the sky and say thank you because the whole reason that I have a podcast for my Isle of Elsie Patreon uh, backer blog is you were the inspiration behind this. What? We were hanging out 
we, bo- we were both teaching at the California College of the Arts MFA Comics program a couple summers ago. And you were like, I have this podcast called Sagittarian Matters. And you said, I want to ask you some productivity questions for my podcast or whatever. And in my mind, podcasting was always like, roll out the equipment and the reel-to-reel machine and the mics and the cans and all the wires and everything. But you just like pulled out your iPhone, recorded a little interview with me, and then boom, it was on your podcast. And then over the years, I've just been really impressed uh, when I've been at con conventions with you or teaching with you or whatever. It's like you'll just see a cool person. They're there for, as like a visiting artist for the, one of the programs we're teaching for. We're at a con convention and Howard Cruz is there, John Porcelino is there or something. And you just be like, I'll be right back. <laughs> and you just like go over with your phone, record an awesome interview, and then like boom, you have a podcast. And so in true DIY style, it was like, wow, I could have a podcast. I have an iPhone that has the voice memo app on it or whatever. And so I just started from scratch, just like interviewing friends and family members and stuff. So, and it's been so fun for me. So I just wanted to say thank you so much for being the inspiration behind my podcast. You're welcome. I'm so happy that you could learn from my example and then make your own content and broadcast your own voice in the world. Yeah, and I mean, I, I'm not going to pretend that I'm on the same level. I know you have thousands of followers in your own, you know, oh, whatever. Uh, episode one zillion and stuff. I've done about 10 of these, but uh, they're a lot of fun. Um, so for those of you that don't know, Nicole and I go way, way back. Uh, very far not, back. Not all the way back, but very far back. Um, and we've, we've known each other, I guess, since about 2003. Oh man, that's a long time ago. <laughs> and you, you didn't know you knew me before then, but it's like the footprints poem. When you see one set of footprints, that's when I was carrying you. Yes. <laughs> before we knew each other. Right. Um, so, uh, we go way back, but so, so there's lots of things we could talk about, but what I specifically brought Nicole onto the podcast to talk about, um, is picture books because we're both sort of at this point in our careers where we're both starting to work on picture books, which, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, you have not done before. Is that correct? I don't think I've ever done a picture book. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and me either. I, or, or I, I've done a couple, I had like a couple false starts, which we can talk about, but I'm, I'm sort of setting out, I'm writing my own, I'm illustrating one right now by my sister. And so I feel like it would just be an interesting time to have a conversation about that, you know, why picture books right now? Um, and then sort of talk maybe about the business side a little bit and some of the stuff, and maybe we'll talk a little bit about our books. So uh, my first question for you, Nicole, just to get it out of the way, what were some of your favorite picture books growing up or uh, ones that maybe that you're reading now that are like, oh, this makes me want to make a picture book? Well, pic- picture book, picture book, or just or kids books, I have to say, get ready for the waterworks, Corduroy. Okay. Did you the ever bear. read that? Yeah. yeah, we have a copy of that. We Someone gave us a, a stuffed animal that came with the book Corduroy. Oh, my God. Corduroy, you know, where he's like, this must be a friend. I've always wanted a friend. <laughs> and, she, and she like, she doesn't buy him the first day because her mom's like, come on, we're in a hurry. But then she like He's, brings him on the next day and mends him and everything. Yeah, she can't take him home the first day because his, his overalls are missing a button. But, so he looks shabby. So oh. then he goes searching for a button so maybe he'll be adoptable. But then she comes and she's like, guess what? I'll fix you. And she sews, sews a, a new button on. Oh, my oh gosh. Oh, my God. Okay, it's Corduroy, Frog and Toad. Frog and Toad, okay. 
Um, those I know that's and, a big one for Liz Prince too. Like she dressed yeah. up as Frog and Toad for uh, Halloween one year, and I didn't get it. She was like, "I'm Toad," and I was like, "What <laughs> are you talking about?" <laughs> I would I would have understood. She would, I would have been like, "Liz, that's so interesting because I'm dressed like Frog." Um, yes. And also, uh, blackberries for Sal. Oh, I don't know that one. Is that? Oh wait. Um, oh, do I? Where the it, little boy and his mom, the little girl and the mom go picking blackberries, and the bears come in. Yeah, and okay. and she gets distracted. I'm gonna see if that's by Lind Ward because I think it is. No, she no, gets... it's. Uh, oh wait, is it? No, because because here's how I know. We got the, Liz gave us these story tapes where they like film the picture book, and then they have someone read it. And I think it's the guy from Maine. What's his name? Uh, uh, it's the guy that did Lentil from Black Ohio. Berries no. For Sal came out in 1949, so it's very topical, and it's by Robert McCloskey. McCloskey, that's it. It was guy, a yeah. Caldecott honor, but if you Google it, you have to make sure you put Blackberries for Sal book because otherwise it tries to autocorrect to say Blackberries for Sale. And uh, then it sale. just took me to a lot of different <laughs> totally fresh different blackberries yeah. that I could purchase. No, we have like a we have this weird VHS tape where they read the story to you, and it like kind of films the illustrations and moves the camera a little bit. But that's the one, and it's on a whole Robert McCloskey tape of like four or five of his stories. I so. want to see that. I'm gonna look on YouTube because I would actually oh, like to do that with my graphic novels. You know, like I, I'm such oh, an yeah. audio person now that I really, I like talking to people and I find that at live things, people love hearing you read. People love being mm. read to, even as adults. So that's why any cartoonist yeah, I, I know, I'm like, you don't need to sweat your, your presentation because they're not going to be looking at you. They're excited for yeah. you to read them pictures. And I want to be able to do that for a graphic novel. Like I wish I could have an audio book of Fetch, but there's just not currently a the way technology. to get the, yeah, the visuals and everything. Like that's called an animated feature, but I just like, no, I want, I just want to read the book to people. Well, there's a company, it's called Children's Circle. All they do is, like, film. And sometimes they do limited animation, just, like, a little bit. You know, they'll move the character a little bit with a few drawings, but mostly mm. some of them is just straight up, like, they flip open the book and just kind of film the illustration, move the camera around a little bit. Um, when you win, you come visit us out in Santa Fe. I'll show show them to you in the middle. I can't wait. some ideas. Um, okay, well, those all, so what do those books have in common? There's, I like, mean... bears. <laughs> I I love um, animals, obviously, and I mean I have to say corduroy and frog and toad are pretty melancholy, mm-hmm. and blackberries for sale. There's a lot of kind of like introverted spaciousness, okay, too. And so I I feel like all of those things kind of made made up the, are are kind of part of the building blocks of my myself. Cool. As a kid. And I mean, they all had beautiful illustrations too. And, and so like when you were a kid, and I'm sort of leading you into a question because I have my own side of this, but I'm interested to hear yours. When you were a kid, did it ever occur to you like, oh, I could like make like, so you're reading Frog and Toad. Did it ever occur to you like someone made this and like got paid to make this book that I got out of the library or whatever. And that like, that was a viable career path. Or, and if not for picture books, like when did that occur to you for comics or, you know, some of the other illustration stuff that you do? You know, when I was a kid, I did illustrate things. Um, in Fetch, I drew about the first thing I ever did was an, il- I did an illustrated poem for my mom, mm-hmm. which ended up being Dirty by Mistake. Oops. But I was like, I want to write my mom this poem, but it made sense for the, the pictures and words to be together. 
but I never, I wasn't like, that's my career. When people said, what do you want to be when you grow up? I was like, I don't know. A scientist? A veterinarian? I don't know. what Because I, I thought these were answers like there was something you were supposed to say. Right. Like when people said, do you have an imaginary friend? I made one up because I was like, I think I'm supposed to say yes. But I don't actually know what the point is of having an imaginary friend. Right. Um, I was like, I don't. But I do like talk to my cat and talk to my like pet <laughs> locust or whatever weird cicada right. thing. that I. Anyway, um, I wanted to be an animator. That was the first thing I understood that could that was a job. Mm-hmm. was animation because I would get books about Walt Disney and also I mean I loved Jim Henson and I was like but I didn't I didn't know if I thought I could be a puppeteer because there were no women puppeteers necessarily well, but like I I mean he's here my original puppet don't get weirded out Alec I'm lifting up okay. a puppet right now this is Ramondo hi Ramondo Ramondo looks like sort of a, a polar bear he's a polar a bear he's a little shabby okay. yeah. he's about you know 35 33 years old now um but he was my first puppet, and I would make him costumes, and, like, we would go on road trips. He's kind of quiet. He doesn't really have a voice. We would go on road trips, and I would, like, hide in the back window and, like, wave at people with Ramondo and make him dance and stuff. Um, but so I liked giving life to animals and objects. Mm-hmm. So I, Animator was my first idea of that. But then I realized how many drawings you drawings had to make. Drawings it took, yeah. And I was like, Well, oh. and we grew up in that sort of Disney renaissance where that was pretty out there. I mean, they were like... I remember when you watched one of those Disney VHS, like they would often have things in the front that's like, these are the people that drew it. Like you saw Glenn Keane, like, you know, drawing the Little Mermaid or whatever. And so it's like, oh, wow, that's a career path. That's one of the ones I remember, too. Yeah. It, but then I, I realized I was like, ooh, too many drawings. I just mm-hmm. I just knew that I didn't have the patience for that. Yeah. Um, like because it was the time of cell animation, too. It was before digital right. animation that I knew of. So... Then I think I did, I got into like the far side and um, comics and I, you know, a certain <laughs> you, point you I, went from animation, which is 24 drawings a second to the far side, which is one drawing. <laughs> that seems, that made more sense. That One was drawing like, a day. Just like, okay, that's all I could handle. Yeah. I like was like. A snake and a cow. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> I was like, and then a woman that eerily looks like my future self. Yeah. I was like, yeah. that's, that's what I'm like. Far side. I like, you know, of course, Garfield. I liked, you know, I like Garfield comic books and also Garfield and Friends, the show. But, um, yeah, me too. Yeah, probably not until that was around elementary school was when I wanted to be an animator and then gave it up being maybe a puppeteer, but I didn't really understand. And also there were no women you could see that were puppeteers except right. for like Sherry Lewis, which well, I, I, I was kind of like, that would be cool. But I didn't that seem like there was just one of her. Whereas animators, there's like a billion. So you're like, I could be one of those billion people. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, and so part of the reason I asked this question is my mom got me this book when I was a kid, and it's called Children's Book Illustration and Design, and it's edited by Julie Cummins, and it's like profiles on all these illustrators. So for me, like, when I got this book, which I still have, it's just like, you know, here's Anita Lobel, and like, here's some sample illustrations, here's a picture of her that lots of them have like pictures of their studios, and like, um, I was a kid who, who never read a book, like... <laughs> Like, uh, any book filled with pictures, I just, like, I, I still have never read this book. I'm a little embarrassed to say it. But, um, but I remember just being like, wow, like, this is, a like, a career path. Like, people illustrate books or whatever, and it sort of changed how I looked at those. Um, but for me, it was sort of like, so from an early age, I was like, this is a career path. I think this might be something I want to do. And so I tried lots of times over my life to, like, try to make a picture book. Um, most famously in high school, 
I like fully illustrated like a full color, probably 20 or 30 page uh, version of Rapunzel for my high school girlfriend. And I gave oh her God. all the originals. No. <laughs> and, I, and I remember my mom said like, don't give her the originals. You know, like you can make a photocopy and give it to her. We could take some nice photographs or something. And I was like, I understand what you're saying, mom, but I'm in love. And so the whole point <laughs> is to give her the originals or whatever. So I like lost this thing. Nothing and is then, more Alec than that. You're like, yeah, I'm right? doing it all the way. All the way. Um, but so, and that, that's probably the closest I got. And then like, I took some classes. I went back to school. I tried all these different things. And I remember like when I got out of art school, I had like a false start again, where I was like, all right, time to make some picture books. Cause I had taken like a picture book class. And then I was just like, oh, I don't have any ideas or whatever. Um, but so like one of my questions for you is like, why now? Like why at this point in your career or like with all the amazing things you've done, you know, you're a prolific zinester, you've had uh, graphic novels published, um, you know, like what, what's happening in your life right now that makes it feel like the right time to start making picture books? Gosh. And, and have you had false starts along the way like I did? You know, I got, I got, con- I always, I just, I never wanted to be a graphic novelist because similar to when I thought I wanted to be an animator, I was like, ooh, that's too hard. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, I don't want to work that hard. Yuck. That seems so boring. You know, but then I got... But then I just was making things that lent themselves to be graphic novels. Right. And then it just Big was like stories. Yeah, like I just had pra- I was just practicing that thing as I was like, you know, I was making hundreds and hundreds of pages of diary comics meanwhile being like, "Ew, I would never do that." You know, and then somebody was like, "Oh, do you want to make a graphic novel?" and I was like, "Oh, sure." And then I did one and I was like, "Okay, well, as soon as I finish doing this, then I'm going to be able to just publish illustrations or whatever." Because mm-hmm. um it, it's hard on your body. It's hard on your mind to make graphic novels. You know, it It just takes so much isolation from the amount of hours you need to spend alone in your story thinking through the drawings. Yes. That it didn't seem sustainable to me. But, you know, illustrators and people that make kids' books, I feel like it's like work smarter, not harder. I feel like it's like, yes. you know, it's not easier to make kids' books. Like, it's not – like, you know, sometimes people think that you are dumbing down your writing to just mm-hmm. do a 36 page book, which isn't true. Like you still have to use a lot of smarts to do it, but mm-hmm. drawing wise, it is easier yes. to just make 32, 36 pages. Like that sounds luxurious and wonderful. And right. like, a, like a year of work tops instead of, you know, five or seven or 10 years. Or, or Oh my years. gosh. You know what? God bless me. If my job is to make a picture book, that's 32, 36 pages. And it takes me four years to make it. I, that workload, wonderful. Like, yeah. if, if I could get paid enough that I could spend more than a year on that book, like, what, what am I doing? No, you know? I mean, what, that's one of the things I wrote down is just the money aspect. And, you know, some people might see this as a little too cynical, but this is what we have to do as freelance artists is figure out. It's, it's basically like I almost think of it as a, a curve where it's like how much time do you spend on a project and how much do you get paid for it? And the really good gigs, you're above the curve, right? Where you're getting paid more than it takes to uh, execute the work because that means you're making more money than it covers your living expenses. You can put some money away for savings or for a rainy day when work is slow, you know, all that kind of stuff. And then the worst projects are like when you're spending, you know, 10 years on a graphic novel, the money's gone and you're just burning your own time trying to get a project done. So, yeah, I mean, like that's that's definitely a big thing that I've thought about in terms of picture books like uh 
in, in many cases, like the advance that you would get from a real quote unquote traditional publisher, um, you know, is on par or, uh, even more than like for small publishers of a graphic novel or many, you know, mainstream publishers and the thought of, yeah, like, you know, Hey, Nicole, I need you to illustrate these 32 pages versus, Hey, Nicole, can you illustrate how many pages was fetched? 300, three, like three, 300 pages. Can you draw like six drawings per page for 30, for 300 right. pages? Like, just no, give- so it's, it's like, it's like, uh, as a cartoonist, you're tearing phone books in half. You're like the world's strongest woman. And then they're like, can you tear this sheet of paper in half? And you're like, you know, ripping it in half, ripping it in fours, you know, <laughs> ripping it in eights, ripping it in three seconds. Like your editor, like, oh, hey, could I just ask for another edit on page four? You're like, of 32? Sure. Yeah. I'll draw it three more times. Who cares? Or- what do you want? Yeah. Well, you know, the other thing is my graphic novels are for adults, um, you know, fetch, Fetch, YA people have read Fetch, and the American Library Association has recommended it for YA. But um, both of my books have a lot of adult content, just like, you know, darker themes and adult language. And so when I teach, you know, I've taught, I think once I told you the number and you thought I was, like, making up a number. It was, like, 10,000. Yeah, I've I've taught right now about 12,000 students uh, over the time that I've been teaching for the past, like, 18 years. And most of those people are kids, not, I mean, I've taught maybe like 150 MFA students, but most of those no, people when, are kids. When Nicole told me 10,000 a couple of years ago, I was like, oh, come on, Nicole. And then she just broke it down. She was like, X number of kids <laughs> in each school, Y schools times Z number of years, 10,000. And my jaw was just like on the floor. Yeah. Well, I, there were just years where I was like, yeah, I would be teaching like, 300 kids at a school and then teaching just like multiple schools and then doing rock camp, which is like a hundred kids per session. Anyway, but, but most of those kids, they, I can't even tell them my last name because if they Google me and find my work, that's too old for them. If they're in fourth grade or whatever, you know, then it, it's just not good. But so if I had had a book to share with them, it would have been awesome for all of us. Yeah. If I yeah. could have been like, Hey, you guys are meeting me. You're watching me draw a dog on a skateboard. I'm teaching you how to draw the same thing. And now here's my book. You can take home and always know that you were friends with this artist. Yeah. That would have been awesome. It will be awesome. That's going to happen. Thanks. <laughs> Some, I mean, someday you, soon. Uh, you know, I, I certainly hope that I'm not in their classroom in the same way. I hope that I'll be able to do like assemblies someday, maybe like Raina Telegemeyer does as opposed to me working in like specific classes because uh-huh. it yeah. is hard. But um, yeah, I, I can't wait to like commune with kids because it's fun reading out loud. It's fun meeting kids mm-hmm. and hearing their crazy ideas about stuff. Yeah, totally. Um, so uh, and then and then I just want to give my like perspective on this. Yeah. Just to, just so Please. you can hear because because I, I thought it was funny. Like one of the things I always thought growing up was like, or, or after I had all these false starts, I was like, a lot of the authors that I like seem to start making picture books after they have kids, right? And so it was like, oh, I had kids, and then, you know, like, and now, and, and what I always thought from before I had kids was like, oh, you must have a kid, and then you're like, see the world through their eyes, and you're like, now I have this deeper understanding of childhood, or you, it helps you remember your childhood, and so now you have this deeper understanding, now you bring the re-experienced uh, childhood aspects with your adult experience and then you like you're ready to make picture books um, but now that I've had kids I think it's really just that you read so many horrible picture books with your kid that you're just like I could do better than this like, like 
you know, I mean, it's the same as any media, 90% of it's garbage. And then that last 10% is like worth killing for. But um, I just, oh my gosh, we go to the library every week with Suzanne. We pull out 10 picture books, we come home and we read them. And I swear out of those 10, like only one is worth like reading more than once or whatever. And some of them are just like, we got this one the other day where like this little girl's like playing a game with her mom or whatever. And they're at the beach or whatever, the beach house. And then the little girl like, like, or the mom turns around, the little girl's gone. And she's like, oh, I wonder where Sally went or whatever. And they're like at the beach. So like, I'm reading like, oh my God, did her kid drown in the water? Like, cause they're at the ocean, you know? So she's walking down the beach, calling her kid's name or whatever. And the kid's like hiding in the sand dunes, but it was like so terrifying. And I was like, which editor read this and said like, oh yeah, no problem. Uh, fast track it. Like, go ahead and draw your 32 pictures. We'll get this out the door. And then Claire read it. And I was like, Claire, did you read that book? And she's like, oh, I couldn't. I almost had to put it down. I was so scared that they were going to find, you know. They the just want like a blue child and then it's like. <laughs> drowned. Like, a, oh. About how the baby comforts her always as an angel or something. Yeah, yeah no. it was so scary. And it was just like, this idiot got this book through this system. Like, anyways. And, and so what I've been getting a lot of strength from now as a new parent is just like. Every time I go to the library, there are horrible books in that stack. And well, I just go, this is a horrible book. I could do better than this. Alec, people don't talk about this as a motivator. But that that was the reason I ever even started making zines. Was like, I got a zine that was, pe- that was getting a lot of attention. And it was mm-hmm. so bad. It was so, like, boring, poorly put together, ugly. Typos. Like, type, like it just was, like, the most basic, like, the word basic that people use now. It was, like, mm-hmm. the most basic just like not interesting thing that I was like, oh, this is what a zine is? I could do this. I love the lowest (laughs) common denominator. People don't talk about that enough. There's plenty of people that do stuff just because they have confidence or the connections to do it, Mm -hmm. not because they're more talented than you. So then when you see that stuff, you can be like, oh, I'm at least as talented as this. Yeah, like at least I could tell a story about a mom and her daughter and not have the reader terrified that one of them has passed away before the end of the book. Like, you know what I mean? If you have an advice question for Sagittarian Matters, call or text our advice hotline, 971-361-9998. Leave a message. We might answer your question on the air, and we promise not to answer the phone. That is a Sagittarian promise that you can take all the way to the bank. Okay, so we're both working on some kids' books. So uh, maybe, do you want to go back and forth and we'll each talk about one? Because I think yeah. we both have two books that we're working on, right? I mean, yeah, I don't even know what I have. I got. I just got a lot of... I got a <laughs> well, I wrote time. down. I think I know what you're working on. Oh, great, great. Okay. <laughs> So, so tell me about the uh, the trans kids book that you're working on with some writers. Oh, well, that I, that might end up being a little bit more uh, middle middle age middle age. Oh, middle really? Grade, like a middle grade reader thing. Middle grade or young adult. Um, it's essentially myself, gender theorist Judith Butler, and child mm-hmm. psychologist Ken Corbett are traveling around the country talking to kids about how they're living gender today. So we're talking to kids that are, you know, cisgender, transgender, non-binary, um, agender, like all kinds of kids. And we're talking to them about their experience with gender and, you know, the, the ability to mess up, the ability to try things out, mm-hmm. um, you know, what, what the difference it makes for them if their parents are supportive or not, 
the things they face in schools with their bathrooms or with their friends or you know just lots of lots of stuff like that and it's going to be fully illustrated and hopefully it will be something that can be appropriate for all ages but mostly yeah. will be for people i would say you know i like like I, middle school kids yeah i think probably like 5th grade and up yeah it would be appropriate for um, you know, when you get around that time, around adolescence, when you start being like, oh, I really got to, mm-hmm. I really got to think about this. I'm really feeling the pressure. Well, or puberty's coming down the hall and you got to. Puberty's coming. People are giving me all these, you know, all, all these pressure, external pressures about how to live my gender. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure that you even have that with your kids being girls as, as people like putting their gender stuff on your kids. Yeah, I've Just, actually, I was like at the REI the other day and. I was like buying a helmet. They had two helmets that were my daughter's size. And Suzanne's very into the color pink. That's like her favorite color. And so one of the helmets was like pink everything and pink stripes and pink dots all over it. And then the other one was just kind of like a green stripe and a red stripe and sort of more gender neutral or whatever. Um, And that's the one she picked. And so I was like, okay, are you sure you don't want this pink one? Because you're pretty into pink. You know, that's like your favorite color. And she said, nope, I want this one. And I said, okay. So we picked that one up. And then when we got to the front, I think because of the helmet choice, the and, and Suzanne's just, I mean, we have all, sort of, all our clothes are hand-me-down. So she's just wearing a mishmash or whatever. But, like, he gendered her as a boy and said, like, oh, you know, is, is he excited to ride his bike or whatever? <laughs> um, and I was like, yes, she's very excited. And then he, oh, oh my God, oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> you know, which happens all the time with people. And it's like, well, if you're going to have this huge reaction because you misgendered my kid, then maybe use they pronouns. Like, go for a gender neutral thing. Yeah, go for a gender neutral thing. Or, like, I've started doing that at the playground because I've done that a couple times. Like, oh, you know, how old's your son? Well, actually, it's my daughter. Oh, I'm sorry. You know, and so I've just started saying, like, you know, oh, hey, look look at them. There they are or whatever to to my daughter. Because you sort of do this weird thing as a parent where you're, like, talking to the kid through the parent or whatever, even though everyone's standing there. That happens Uh, with dogs too. Yeah. But it's just been so helpful because then people are like, Oh, well she blah, blah, blah. And you're like, okay, I'll start using the pronoun that you're using for your kid or whatever. Yeah. Um, anyways, yeah, no, it's, it happens every once in a while, but no, that sounds fascinating. So, so what does that book look like though? I mean, is that, uh, is it like 200 pages with all these interviews and stuff and like how many illustrations are going to be in there? Oh, my friend. So far, I mean, this is the antithesis of our podcast. So far, it's looking like it's going to be graphic novel-esque. Oh, no. Come on. (laughs) (laughs) I had this firmly in 32 pages in and out. (laughs) Oh, no. I think it's probably going to be like 150 pages, like fully illustrated (sighs) or something. But I mean, it's going to be easier. I think it's going to be full color. Maybe it's not easier. I I could be tripping. Who knows? (laughs) knows what's happening it's full color oh and it's actually an animated movie <laughs> yeah i have to animate it myself by hand there's uh no digital anything uh so but so that's but that's i'm i'm working my way down i'm working my way from yeah. books okay. for adults to books for younger adults to books for kids okay well i had that in the wrong category that's still super interesting to know thanks that's awesome um, but you have a, a, a sweet, so I'm going to talk about one of mine. Yeah, 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 please. Come back to you. Okay, so what I've been doing, and we talked about this a little bit on the phone the other day, but I'm going to just put it in the podcast here for people, is I've been sort of adapting the 24-hour comics challenge, um, which I try to do one every year. I think I've done it every year. I can't remember if I did one last year. But the last couple of years, I've been using it, and in 24 hours, I just like 
spit out a draft of a picture book because I'm really interested. Suddenly, um, after being bolstered by horrible picture books, I was like, oh, cool, I could do this. Um, and so I sort of got a couple of ideas. And so I'll do like a whole draft in 24 hours. Claire will, you know, she took Suzanne for like a whole day, gave me a whole day, and I just worked on it. And so my first one that I've been working on is called Beatnik Baby. And it's uh, a reaction to Boss Baby, which I know turned into a whole movie and everything. Mm-hmm. I haven't seen the movie. But the book is very popular. Um, and the have you ever read Boss Baby, the book? Mm, no, but I've seen the movie. Oh, wow. So that's funny. Okay. Well, in the book, it all takes place like in the, um, like in the fifties, sort of, sort of like uh, retro fifties, like the mom and dad are like dressed really cool and they have really cool furniture and like just some of the accents in the book are all fifties and stuff. But then the protagonist and main character is this like Don Draper baby, which for me is like the least interesting character to pick from the 1950s. And so I was like, ugh, yeah, like, I guess this is cool, but, like, just seeing, like, the background setting and stuff, you then have, like, this CEO baby that comes in and is bossing people around. And I was just like, ugh. And so then I was like, what if you did the same setup, same time era and stuff, but you went beatnik and, like, went the totally different direction? And so it starts um, – so the basic idea for mine is it's, like, a, a, a square parents, and then they have a kid, but it's, like, a beatnik kid. And so they're like – go to like a hippie club or you know like a beatnik club and people are like playing on bongos and doing weird dances and the parents are totally freaked out but the baby's totally digging it um the first draft is not very good it needs a lot of work um but it was super fun uh just like coming up with a first draft and showing it to people and getting feedback so i've been enjoying that and just to not totally like uh it feels like i'm going a different direction because yours turned into a 150 page book with full color illustrations Mm -hmm. mine's like it's like the first draft is like 60 pages it's like way too long so i need to cut like half of it anyways in the next draft and like get it down to a more manageable stuff like some of the books i read with suzanne like we read all the bill pete books some of those are pretty long like some of his are 60 pages long or something but it's like it it doesn't feel like something i should be reading my kid it feels like you said like fifth grade you know like a kid's checking out from the library it's like 60 pages or they're reading it for a book report and they're not quite ready to make the jump to like a book full of words and stuff All right, so then back to you. So the other one I had on my list that we had talked about or I had seen some sketches or maybe I even read a draft of it was the Sloth story. Sloth Moss. Sloth Moss? Sloth Moss, yeah. It's, you know... Did uh, I read a... I feel like I read a draft of it. You read a draft of it. You gave me feedback on it. I Sloth Moss is a story that I wrote in like 2015 and Mm -hmm. I just, you know, and I kind of... I shopped it around and then it's... Some stuff happened that I can't really talk about, but it I got kind of disenchanted with the idea, and then fetch came up as something that I needed to draw instead. Mm-hmm. Essentially, I'm just like following the money. You know, I'm like, here's yeah, three ideas, fine. and then publishers like, well, we picked this idea, and I'm like, okay, fine, this other idea is toast. But Sothmoss has always been in my head, and the story keeps growing and growing, and it's been hard for me to figure out what age group it is. I'm kind of, I thought it was going to be a picture book, but people, adults were like, it's hard to read out loud to our kids because the names are like hard to say over mm. and over again, like Sloth Moss. And then there's a character named Sloth Moth. And it's just like the characters are hard for the adults to say. And some of the ideas were a little more like suspenseful or mm. intense than a little kid. That would be appropriate for a little kid. So I, th- I think it's going to be like, like early element I think it's gonna be like elementary school like I don't know 
I, I was just rereading the book The Toothpaste Millionaire. Did you read that okay. book? I don't oh, think so. Oh my god. I think that I'm not you would, very well read. You would love it. I don't I okay. feel like that's something that you would read in elementary school. It's about an industrious I, kid that make that becomes a millionaire by selling toothpaste for cheaper than anybody else. Well the and, problem was in fifth grade I didn't read anything that wasn't a Karl Barks comic book. Oh well look at you now. You're like a Karl Barks scholar. Literally I, a scholar. I read, yeah. Uh, um but so, but and then along the way, there's also some other. Yeah, I'll tell you other kids' books in the hopper when we. Well, because what I was going to say is, so uh, our dear, 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 dear friend Aaron Rainier, uh, just illustrated a book called The Lifters, which was written by Dave Eggers, and I got it. There's tons of illustrations in it. It's like it's like a 300 page book or something. But what that, age is that for? I don't know. I mean, I think it's sort of like you're saying, like that fifth grade kind of like middle grade reader thing where it's not quite YA, yeah. but it's like, because it's, it's heavy illustrated. Anyways, and then Aaron linked to a podcast that Dave Eggers was on, and I don't really care about Dave Eggers. I mean, I'm sure he's a nice guy or whatever, but I was mostly listening just to hear him like talk about how great Aaron is, which was very satisfying. Um, but one of the things I picked up from it that was great was he works at all those 826 Valencia, you know, writing centers. Uh, he like, he doesn't work for them. He established that he's the guy. (laughs) Um, but, and, and he's like listening to this podcast now and he's like, I'll never, never work with Alec Longstreth. He's on my blacklist. Like I hate this guy because he's bad mouthing me or whatever. But, um, no, but one of the things he said was he wrote an early draft of the book and then like read it with kids. And just did like what you and I do as professional artists with our peers, you know, reading drafts of each other's work and providing feedback and stuff. But he just did it with kids, you know. So it's like one of the things that I that popped into my head when you were talking about sloth moss is, you know, next time you're in a room full of fifth graders, be like, yeah, I'm going to teach you for 30 minutes. And then everyone's going to take 15 minutes and read this book and then give me some feedback or whatever, you know, and like. Um, that might be super valuable to just get like, you know, I don't know, read it with a class of fourth graders and then like, it's too hard to read. And then you read it with a group of sixth graders and like this part's weird or whatever. And that might actually help you hone in on like who it is right for. That's a good idea. You know, I gave, when I was sending out copies for people to give me feedback on, I sent some to people with kids. I was like, would your kids be willing to read this? And they said, yes, Mm -hmm. but I found their feedback felt very watered down. Their feedback mm-hmm. felt very much like they were trying to please me. Maybe oh, it's just that they liked it, but the kids were like, it was good. Did you like the illustrations? Yes. Did you uh, like the story? Yes, I did. I don't, I, I, but I think, yeah, like that kind of thing, like just like a cross section of fourth graders or something, including yeah. the rude kid, that will be right. like, this is boring, or like, that guy was stupid. This part's, yeah, this part's lame or whatever. Yeah, compared to, I, I felt like I got a lot of good feedback from kids, but it was hard for me to tell if they were just... Like, we think Nicole's cool, so we, like, want her to like right. me, so we're just going to be like, this is cool. And I'm like, or I'm gonna rip, say rip me apart. To show off. Yeah. 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 But I want to know with B- Nick Baby, because with Boss Baby, I didn't read the book, I don't think, but I know the premise is, like, essentially, like, it's like a kid's view of, like, what happens to a household when a baby is born, and the parents are just running around trying to please the baby. Yeah. So when the I mean, baby is the beatnik, what is, like, uh, the parents are squares. Right. Then, like, how is it, like, affecting their... Well, I think that's what's missing is so like they go to this nightclub, like, so it starts with, they can't get the baby to sleep. And so they go for a walk, you know, like which parents sometimes do to just like walk around the block and see if like the stroller will help the kid go to sleep. And then they hear this jazz coming out of a nightclub. And so they go down there 
and the kid ends up on stage and, and basically the, the whole impetus for the whole book was my daughter when she was like nine months old would go like blah 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 and I was like oh it's like she's a beatnik you know up on stage doing a thing so that was sort of the seed of the idea and then I read Boss Baby and so those sort of things played off each other um but like, yeah, so much, usually there's a message that needs to be conveyed or so many of them have cyclical endings where it's like, um, you know, my sister, Galen, who I did a podcast with, who's like a children's book expert. Um, she said like, you can't start a picture book with like the parents can't get to sleep because the baby's up without like the book has to end. The last page is like, everyone's peacefully asleep or whatever, yeah. right? Like that has to come full circle. Or if you think about parents reading it with their kid it's almost always at bedtime and so there needs to be that bedtime element to it or like that's why someone would buy the book is like oh this is a good one to read at bedtime or something so your brain is not troubled when you're going to sleep it's like and everything was fine and everyone was calm right just like Um, you're calm yeah but the other thing that like as i worked on it or i feel like one of the things i worked through in the first draft was just that uh I think I worked through some of like my own baggage of growing up with like somewhat square parents. I, I mean, I love my parents very much, but like my dad's a doctor. He has had the same job his whole life. Um, my mom was a newspaper reporter, you know, and is sort of this suburban kind of housewife uh, uh, zone. And uh, I think they, they have struggled with me being an artist sort of over time. I mean, they've been incredibly supportive along the way, but like, uh, to this day, uh, sometimes I'll hang out with my parents and they'll just be like, so, so what do you do? I don't, I don't understand. Like, how do you, how do you make a living? Like, how do you pay your bills? Like, I don't understand. And I have to like kind of rewalk them through being an artist and working freelance and stuff. So I feel like that might be in the second draft. One of the things that comes around a little bit more is like the, a little bit of the dynamic of like square parents having an artistic kid and trying to be supportive and understanding that though, not quite maybe, you know, fitting in with that scene or something. Or like the kid, the kid, I mean, it seems to me that the kid would loosen up the parents by the end. Yes. And by the end, the parents would be like snapping the, you know, snapping. And that is the last picture is them fitting in at the club and they're regulars now and whatever. But, um, yeah. Or like they start their own beatnik band together. Yeah. Some, some of the parents loosen up. Yeah. Like your parents um, have loosened up. Like your parents are just total beatnik artists. Oh, they, you know, they show up at Short Run and just walk around. They're like, hey, cartoonist, no big deal. Well, I, kept, I mean, just the last thing about observing parenting from afar is like friends of mine that I that were like, our house is definitely going to be the cleanest house and all these rules and blah, blah, blah. And then they have kids and the kids, like the, my friends are like square and then the kids are just like, blah. And then by the end, the parents are like, I'm like, oh, I'm sorry, Whatever. I spilled something. And they're like, it doesn't matter everything's going to make a mess. The house is going to be dirty anyway. We're just going to have to clean anyway. <laughs> Go like, with the flow, man. Yeah. Today's episode of Sagittarian Matters brought to you by Maddie Dog, Madeline Berger, Mary Pinson, Shoshana Ruth Wechter, and Christy Harrod. If you would like to support Sagittarian Matters, including producer Chris Sutton, please send $5, $10, $5 million, that is your business, via PayPal to hornetleg at gmail.com. That's hornet like the insect, leg like its appendage at gmail. Thank you for your support, and we look forward to saying your name on the podcast. Producer Ponyo looks forward to it too. Don't be scared, that's Ponyo's voice.
All right. Well, do you want to talk about any other ideas before I move on to the next thing? You said you had a, a hat full of ideas. Well, the other thing I'm, I'm working, my French publisher is, um, Kambaraki is, is interested in me making a kid's book. So I just have some drafts, you know, at a certain point there was a book about a sloth in a bathtub. I have some sketches of like an uptight kid that meets a sloth and sloths are gross in real life. Like they're gross. Mm. They smell, they're covered in bugs. They're like have moss on them because they don't move and they're dirty and so, like, hence just, the name Sloth Moss. Yeah, so just the idea of some like really uptight, anal retentive kid just like discovering a sloth in their room one day and being horrified sounds really fun to me to draw. I don't really know what happens yet, but I have a lot of drawings of them together. Cool. So I yeah, don't know. Sometimes what that it's is. just finding the right image and that sort of propels something forward. Yeah. Um, the other one I've been working on is I, I did that hundred watercolor challenge where I painted a hundred little paintings for these one word prompts and uh i think it was fairy tale or something two word prompt and uh i drew like a, a reversal of rapunzel because i grew my beard out really long for three years or whatever um and so it's like the guys up in the tower with a long beard and then having uh the woman climbing up like the quote-unquote fairy princess sort of climbing up to rescue him um and then i did a bunch of research about rapunzel and it turns out it's like all this weird stuff about fertility and um uh, pregnancy and midwives and all this stuff. Like all the, each character like represents sort of an archetype in really? the birthing process and stuff. Yeah. It's really weird when you get into the research. So I was like, what if I flipped it and tried to make sort of like a feminist take on it? That was more, um, I don't know. So anyway, so I have this really messy first draft. <laughs> it's like way too long. And, um, that one has like paragraphs of text and stuff that I sort of like dumped out all in a night. Um, so that's the other one that I'm working on and it's called beard Punzel and it's a mess. Oh my God. Um, Claire climbing your beard. That's what she did. Your wife had to climb your beard to get in your comics tower. That's true. <laughs> All right. So I have two other things on my list and then we'll wrap this up. And now but you so, have two kids. And I have two kids. So the, I'll never have time to draw these. The fer- but the fertility thing was true. Anyway. Yeah. Um, so, so one other thing I just wanted to touch on is when I was living in the Bay area, I went to the Walt Disney Family Museum and saw this amazing Marie Sendak exhibit. And my favorite part of it, uh, besides all the art and everything, uh, was they just had this one wall. And it was like every book he had ever illustrated. And it was like 300 titles. I mean, it was like a whole wall, just like columns of book names. Um, And it was just really inspiring because it was like, you know... It's, it's not like he has a hundred books and every single one of them is where the wild things are. You know, it's like he has a wall of 300 books, most of which you've never heard of. You've never seen. They're not in print anymore or whatever. And there's one where the wild things are. And it's just like they're on the list amongst, you know, 10 other books that he illustrated that year or whatever. Um, not that he did 10 a year, but you know what I'm saying. Yeah. Um, and I, I just found that really inspiring of like, also sort of this intimidation of like, Oh, I can't do kids books or picture books or whatever. And then it's like, eh, just make them and put them out there. And not every single one's going to be a total winner, but you just kind of like move on to the next one and keep exploring ideas. And maybe someday there'll be one that really connects with people. Um, but, uh, the last thing I want to say is cause I know today that you went and saw the Jim Henson exhibit that's currently in Los Angeles. I'm a Muppeteer. And I wanted to talk about just like that Jim Henson concept because like he always swore through his whole career that like the Muppets were not for kids. Um, and it was sort of like in his mind, he made them for adults, but they were great for kids. Um, and so that seems like something uh, 
that could be like important for picture books? Like, do you think about that when you're thinking about these concepts of how like, you know, you want it to work for the parents, but also for the kids or like there's different aspects? Well, like with Sloth Moss, the story just came to me. Like, I just wanted to tell this story about this sloth and this thing that happened. And, you know, it was a little bit inspired by a picture book that I found as an adult called like Hello Joe which was about this like really annoying bear and crow I think that were best friends walking around the forest like making fun of everyone essentially and like talking in this obnoxious way and everyone was like a little bit bugged by them and I like felt for them and then at the end they get in trouble like they fall in a hole or something Mm -hmm. and then everybody comes over and they're essentially like help us up as everyone's like why should you know? Why should we help you? Why you should we making, help you? Yeah. You, and then they agreed to help them if they stop talking that way. The whole forest is like, if you stop saying hello, right. Joe, and mimicking us. But I, I felt I was like, oh, I want to have a character like that. That's kind of unlikable in the ways that I feel like you know the ways that I feel like my worst self, and then Sloth Moss is like my best self. And I just yeah. wanted to tell this story. And so, you know, I have friends that are like, ooh, this feels too old for kids. But it's not actually too old for kids. And I just want to, yeah. like, complete it. And then if there's certain things I have to take out, like the sloth the sloth and the pangolin are on a date, which I guess, like, adding romance. Mm-hmm. But I, I don't know. Like, Rapunzel, Sleeping Beauty, like, yeah. they're getting kissed in their sleep. They're getting married. They're pregnant eating a cabbage. Like, I don't know. That seems pretty adult to me. Yeah. So I, I like to read it. I'm interested to see if my adult friends would read it. I did a poll mm-hmm. on Instagram. I was like, would you read a book about this sloth? And everybody yeah. said yes. I think yeah, that right, right now the, the political climate is so bleak that I think having a book that kind of is all ages isn't so uh-huh. bad. It's a nice respite. Yeah, yeah well, I mean, uh, one of the things I would say is like, there, there's this amazing, this is, this is a little bit of a story, but I was in, when I was living in New York City, I used to go to the Society of Illustrators. They have a show once a year called, uh, what is it called? Anyways, it's the picture book one. It has some clever name. Ugh, I can't think of it. Anyways, and the whole upstairs gallery is all the original art, and it's like juried. They go through all the picture books that have been submitted. They pick out the best pieces. They put them on the wall. And then down in the basement, they have this huge table, and they have all the books. So you can like look at the illustrations, and then you look at the books. And so I used to go every time I was there and I would go walk around the gallery and look at it. And so I walked in, I would always go to the left and I sort of like button hooked around the, the whole room. And the last one was a Quentin Blake original. And it was this huge two page spread. And there's this guy, it's, he's all gray and he's just looking at a candle. And then Quentin Blake took like a two inch brush, dipped it in like orange and yellow watercolor and just drew like a circle around the candle. It's like one of the most, impactful images I've ever seen. I had no idea what the context was, but I just saw it and was like, wow, Quentin Blake is pure confidence and what a master illustrator. And then years and years later, I was like looking at Quentin Blake books at a bookstore and I saw that image and I was like, I don't even know what this book is, but I'm buying it. And it's called Michael Rosen's Sad Book. And I really think you should read it, Nicole. It's like, if, if you never have. I'm I writing it down right now. Any, anyone listening to this should read it. But it's about this guy and how his son died when he was a teenager. Oh and God. so it's just a book about, like, I'm really, it just starts, he's like, hey, uh, it's like a picture of him smiling. And, like, the first words are like, I'm really, really sad. This is what my face looks like. You might think that I look happy, but inside I'm really, really, really sad. And then it's like, because my son died. And then you, like, it, you'll, you'll, it'll just destroy you. You'll cry through the whole thing. Wonderful. But it's like, there's no topic that you couldn't talk about in a picture book and just like 
like some of the feedback I've been getting on mine have been like, oh, well, you know, who is Beatnik Baby for? You know, like are kids going to get that it's San Francisco in the 1950s and whatever? And I'm just like, I guess I don't care. You know, <laughs> you know, like I think an adult could read that and be like, oh, cool, look, it's San Francisco. Or like a kid doesn't need to pick that up. They might just follow along on that baser level and there's depth to it or whatever. Or like, you know, I, I get that like Michael Rosen's sad book could be a book that like, exists so that when a kid's parent dies you could buy it for them and then like read it to them and could help them process that but i also think it's just like a powerful book for adults to read because hopefully most adults know more people that have died than kids but um you know it just i just feel like sometimes you get so hung up in the commercial sort of aspect of like you know who is this book for what's the market blah 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 um, when sometimes it's just like you're compelled to make your book about your sloth and your pangolin and yeah they're on a date deal with it like at some yeah. point kids gotta learn that people go on dates and that's okay <laughs> and <laughs> it's know? like a pretty braided g friendly date i, I do want to say a book that i found in a a couple books i found in um schools that i've then ordered for myself one of them's called my turtle died today and it <laughs> is another it's a bummer it's like this kid yeah. just being like my turtle died and just like about his, his dead turtle. And then he puts it in a box and the book ends on such a weird non sequitur. Like it's just the dog, then the dog had puppies and the kids just move on and are like, well, they're still alive. Like, it's so weird, but I, I love it. And I want, you know, I, when I was a kid, that kind of thing, I, you know, like corduroy had really kind of, yeah, I was going to say the book, the books you mentioned at the top of the podcast, you were talking about had sort of that somber quality where it's exploring something beyond just sort of the normal fare for kids. Yeah. And I like something like beatnik baby. Like it doesn't matter if it's like, kids are going to like it if it's not boring and there's hard, like they're just going to like it and they're going to like that it's for them. And they're going to like that. They haven't seen anything like it. And that they're like, and also kids are like, what is a beatnik? And they're going to learn it. Yeah. It just doesn't matter. Yeah. So, so I've, I've sort of chilled out on that stuff or just like, I, I'm in a weird place. I feel like right now with my own career where I just don't want to deal with all the publishing stuff that you handle with such good grace. And, uh, Nicole, if you don't know, is like the hardest working, uh, uh, published author. I'm just going to put author. I'm not even going to say cartoonist. Thank I'm just going to say author. She relentlessly tours, uh, is an amazing promoter of her work and just like uh i admire you so much for that nicole but i just i just don't think i have the backbone to deal with it or like you know i'll i'll go through three drafts i'll you know i'll get your feedback on be nick baby on the second draft or whatever like i'll show it around to my friends and then at some point i just get to a breaking point where i'm like i just want to make this book or isle of elsie you know like yeah i i i sought the feedback i needed i drew the story and I'm just going to make it myself. So I'm, I'm also just excited to operate outside of that system and just like make picture books and release them and uh, not sweat so much. Oh, my gosh. You know, if a six year old picks it up instead of an eight year old, it's the wrong age bracket or whatever. You know, it's just like, hey, pick it up. If it looks fun, go ahead and read it. Or there's a, I'm going to have free ebook versions of them so you could like, you know, read it and hopefully it could find their own thing or uh, part of what I love about self-publishing is just people find it and they report back to you. I read it to my six-year-old. She didn't really get it, but my nine-year-old thought it was great or whatever, you know. Well, this is the thing, like, you, there's all this stuff, there's just no, like, capitalism doesn't equal success. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, there's thing, people, there's, like, like, money doesn't 
always come to for ta- money and talent are not always correlated. So, you know, there's things that have made a billion dollars and been published over and over again that are stupid. And then there's things like you self-publish your stuff. And every time I'm in a school with sixth grader, I teach seventh graders now, and there's always kids that become obsessed with you. The whole class is always like, <gasps> and like I teach your stuff to my MFA students and they're like, <gasps> and the seventh graders, when I tell them you have free versions of your books online, they are so grateful and excited. Oh, cool. And when I'm like, you can actually even write to this person and he might talk to you. They're like, are you kidding me? What are you talking about? So I just want people to know, like, if they want to make a picture book and they want to self-publish it, or if they want to make a picture book and they want to have it published, like, it's the same. Yeah. It's just, do you want people to read your work? Okay, we'll get it out there somehow. Yeah. And it's just, if somebody's not handing you a check, like, who cares? Right. And you could, you could make a picture book and post it a page at a time on a Tumblr or whatever. You know, it's just words and pictures working together. I mean, I think to a well-organized mind, picture books are just a form of comics that are out there. Yeah. I, I honestly, like I just met with somebody. I met, I had a meeting with somebody in New York who I showed her some sketches of Sloth Moss. She's like, well, not every book is uh, meant to be published. Some books are meant to be self-published. And I feel like she was saying it as a little bit of a diss, but I was like, I really don't care. I'm just going to make this book because I have to make this yeah. book and whatever happens to it is going to happen to it. But it's not like I'm going to hey, kill hey, that Nicole. character. Hey, Nicole. Yeah. If any of those big wigs in New York, any of the fat cats in the New York publishing scene, don't see Sloth Moss for what it is. Give me a call, okay? I There's will. There's always a home for your work at Phase 8 Publishing. Oh, thanks. Well, I mean, I, I just like, the last thing I want to say about that on my tangent, I love Phase 8 Publishing, by the way, is um, <laughs> if like Sloth Moss, t- like you know this, when you write something, those characters are alive to you. Yeah. And so like I wouldn't kill Sloth Moss and keep him just for myself because one person with an impressive mm-hmm. job doesn't like it. Preach! Yeah, amen. Like, he's got to get out there. He's got to see the sun. Even if it's for, like, 50 people or 200 people, like, he's got to, like, stretch his long sloth arms and let his gross mossy fur, like, see the sunlight. <laughs> <laughs> let all those, let some of the bugs out into the fresh air. Beat Nick Baby's got to crawl down the street. He's got to find that club no matter what. Zabba-dabba-doo. All right. Well, I feel like this is a really uplifting <laughs> moment to end on. Is there anything else that you would like to say? Anything you need to plug right now in your life? Uh, you you have your own Patreon that people can check out. Oh, my gosh. Patreon.com slash. Nicole J. Georges. Nicole J. Georges. Please go to my Patreon. Please become a patron. And if you become a Ponyo's Friend Club member for $10 a month, you get a button, limited supply button, and you get a copy of Anonymous Fuzzball, my most recent uh, comic zine thing. Awesome. So. And uh, Sagittarian Matters podcast. You will Nicole find someone you like com. on there. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you get a lot of awesome guests. I'm always impressed with your, your uh, roster. Thanks, man. All right. Well, Nicole, thank you so much for uh, taking so much time out of your busy schedule to talk with me about picture books and middle grade books. And I look forward to watching all these projects sort of come to fruition and turning into what they will be someday. Thanks, Alec. I'm excited for everything you make. And I am feel, I'm so happy that I get to share it with everybody that I teach and, and everything. And I get all to have right. you as my productivity coach. So thanks for having me. Digital high five. All right, and thank you so much for listening to the Isle of Elsie Patreon podcast. See you next time. Sagittarian Matters is produced by Chris Sutton. 
with assistance by Panyo Georges. Our theme music is composed by Carolyn Pennypacker Riggs of the band Bouquet. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time.